Last week we talked about the Hamoyadim, we finished the Hamoyadim study. We talked about the seven feasts of Israel, seven feasts of Moses, the God's appointed times. Of course, how many times, does anyone remember how many times the Hamoyadim Hebrew word is in the Bible? Close, very close. Uh, it's in Genesis 1, I can't remember which verse it is, but it talks about the, uh, there will be signs in the heavens for the appointed seasons and stuff like the times and the seasons. And then there's another place which talks about what we're talking about, the, uh, um, when, when out of the Exodus, God set up these appointed times or these feasts. So there's seven of them. They're all on a certain, usually on certain days of the year. Some days are like the 14th of the month, so they're set in the calendar. So they might be on different days of the week. I don't know if we talked about that, but when it says it's the 14th of the month, of course the 14th's not always on a Tuesday or a Thursday or on our week. But sometimes it's like the second day of the week, which always is going to be on the second day of the week. It's set in the calendar, so... Um, so that's why some of these dates are kind of confusing because they might end up on our and plus we have our own calendar um, the Jews have two calendars they have their solar calendar which observe which you know observes a normal solar year like we do and of course they have the religious calendar which starts on the seventh month of the year or Nisan so because sometimes in the Bible it'll say the first of first uh, first month which you have to ask yourself which first month is it talking about if it says the 14th day on the first month it's generally talking about Nisan or the religious referring to the religious calendar and of course before that was set that's usually talking about this well it is talking about the solar calendar because there was no religious calendar so um, we talked about the Akidah of course the binding of Isaac the Kedushin or the marriage of Isaac we saw Jesus through all throughout that story um, we saw the Father, we saw the Holy Spirit, we saw the church even in these really old ancient stories. So, and of course we talked about way back, the second, second ser uh, episode, the angel of the Lord, uh, or the messenger of God, or messenger of Yahweh, or Yahweh, or however you want to say his name, <clears throat> Jehovah, you know, so that's the personal name of God. So we saw whoever that was really doesn't sound like a classical angel. You know, a little baby with wings, cherubim, you know, so um, sounds more like the Son of God. So if you want to, again, we talked about it, if you want to go through the Bible and search the angel of the Lord and in the Old Testament, the New Testament is typically an angel, um, and it's usually referring to Gabriel or the messenger angel at the very beginning, um, bringing the good news of the Messiah being born. But in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is most of the time not referring to the winged creature, the mortal creature that we see, you know, on Christmas cards and so forth. So, <clears throat> I'm just challenging you to do that yourself. I don't know why I keep doing this with my hand. I'm going to rest my hand for a little bit now. So, <clears throat> but tonight we're going to talk about, we call it the law, the tab. I, I wanted to get a fancy Hebrew word, but it was too hard to say. So, the law, the tabernacle, and the ark. So, we're going to talk about the law of Moses, the tabernacle which eventually becomes the temple and then of course the ark of the covenant and its role in all of this and perhaps even its future role which we'll 
probably do a lot more discussion later if we have time. So we're going to have an understanding of the Mosaic Law, the Tabernacle System, <clears throat> anyone guess the next one? The Ark of the Covenant, and how these are types of Jesus. How in the world does the Law, Tabernacle, and the Ark show us Jesus? Well, we're going to talk about that. The origins of these three things are, of course, way back in the Old Testament. The law is given in Exodus, and the, there's your references. So if you want to go back and study these passages and make sure that Jeremiah is saying what is right is from the Scripture, there you go. <clears throat> Don't take my word for it. I put it there for you. Law is given in Exodus 19, verse 10 through 25, 20, 18 through 21, and many other places. <clears throat> book of Deuteronomy is actually the repeating of the law. So, Plans for the tabernacle are in Exodus 26. <clears throat> the instructions to build the Ark of the Covenant are in Exodus 25, 10-22. <clears throat> While I was reading this, I was like, man, if, can you imagine being in the desert with that many people, and you're being told, you need to go find this gold, all this silver, all this bronze, you need to, all this, you need to make these curtains of goat hair and twist it with fine linen, and you're in the middle of the desert, and then you've got sea cows, we'll talk about those, manatees, in the desert, so we're going to talk about that, but yeah, there's just a bunch of, uh, bunch of interesting stuff. So, first of all, the law. We're going to talk about that first. God wrote Moses' Ten Commandments on two tables of stone for the nation to obey. And, of course, these Ten Commandments are something we've all grown up with. Um, It never gets, well, it does get old, but I, I see this memes going around saying that Moses was the first uh, person to use the cloud because he, he had his tablet, and, and, and yeah, it just doesn't get, it's not funny anymore, but I see it all the time. <laughs> anyway, um, so when, um, but when he had finished speaking, uh, this is in Exodus 31, by the way, uh, it says, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tables of stone, tablets of stone, written by the finger of God. So Moses didn't carve this out, you know. And if you want to picture small, little, round, square, I don't know what shape they were, um, two stones, obviously, with uh, Paleo-Hebrew alphabet written on it, which is the older style Hebrew. If you want to go to Google later and search Paleo Hebrew alphabet, and it'll, there's hundreds and hundreds of uh, charts out there that'll show you what the letters look like, and then you can, there's also ones that compare it with the post-captivity uh, alphabet. If you want to go to YouTube and search how to learn Hebrew, it's really a fun language. Um, and make sure it's Biblical Hebrew, not modern Hebrew, because it's changed a lot. So, <clears throat> um, these, these, uh, Ten Commandments codified various pre-existing Levitical standards. So, I say pre-existing because these Ten Commandments weren't like unknown before they were given. 
You know, these were things that everyone knew, but God is now saying these are the these are these commandments, these these laws, these rules, the sacrificial system, clean and unclean, and all that was not anything brand new to these people. We'll talk about how we how we guess this or figure this out because, of course, you've got clean and unclean animals. Noah is loading; he's told to load how many seven of every clean and seven of every unclean, two of and then pairs of two, of course. And then he, you're going, how did Moses know what clean and unclean were? So, um, and of course, you have Cain and Abel bringing their what? Their sacrifices. And of course, Cain brought the, not the good sacrifice, the one that God wanted of blood. Um, so, some of this stuff was obviously established way back, likely in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve when he killed the animals in, in front of him, in front of them and clothed them. So, <clears throat> You get the sense that a lot of these, in fact, one of them is remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Not, here's the Sabbath day, keep it holy. It's remember the Sabbath day. It's something that we've talked about since probably the first Sabbath day. And we've talked about this in the past, in past lessons, where the Sabbath isn't a day to just sit down and do nothing. Um, A lot of modern secular and uh, orthodox non-messianic Jews um, will tell you that you're not supposed you know they have special elevators they have special I was shopping for a stove the other an electric oven the other day and I was looking at the features and I saw Wi-Fi not not available and I went oh and then I saw uh, Sabbath mode available and I went Sabbath mode. So what it is, it's a feature in the stove where on the Sabbath day, it's very automated. And so you don't have to push the on and off button when you're cooking stuff on because that's what? That's work. And so, I mean, the Sabbath day has been... The word pulling stuff out, that's not work, but pushing the little button. Right, right. Making the food is not work, but pushing the button is. Yeah, yeah. So it, it was just, I just laughed. But yeah, um... So, the Sabbath we talked about is a day to basically uh, just observe God's creation and and enjoy it and take a break from your normal daily routines. And, of course, we have a whole weekend now, Sunday, too, day off. So, um, some people, not everyone works, you know, the same schedule. So, um, us IT guys, we're we're just on the clock all the time, right? So, but we get to rest, I guess, you know. Anyway. Um, so we have clean and unclean animals, and of course Noah loading the clean and unclean animals in Genesis 7, way before this was established. And then we have remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, so, which is of course saying, hey, this isn't a new thing, just remember it. So before Moses could present the commandments, he brings these ten commandments down that God just wrote on stone for him, and they've all broken the commandments. So he, the nation had broken them. So, of course, Noah and his temper says here in Exodus 32 that it came about as soon as Moses came near the camp, he saw the calf and the dancing and a lot of other things. I'm sure that's my version. And Moses' anger burned and he threw the tablets from his hand and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. I wonder what words he used. Well, anyway. God gave the nation 613 more commandments. Now, you might put that in quotes. Because 613 is a very, it's, it's an estimation. 
okay? Because some of the commandments are restatements of other commandments. Some are kind of like uh, enforcing commandments. So it's really hard to say what are separate commandments. I mean, if you want to go count them, you can, but I don't. it's not a big deal. Um, I actually got this from gotquestions.org. It says that in any calculation of the number of commandments in the Mosaic Law, complications arise. For example, if a command occurs in Exodus and is then repeated in Deuteronomy, does that count as one commandment or two? Further, some commandments can be understood as clarifications of other commandments rather than additional commandments. There is some debate as to the who first came up with 613. The Talmud points to Rabbi Simlai in the 3rd century AD as the originator. However, there's no record of him listing all 613 commandments. The most commonly accepted breakdown was done by Maimonides in the 12th century AD. Maimonides further divided. Maimonides, it's an interesting guy, but we'll, no, here I won't talk about that. Anyway, further divided the 632 commandments, actually split these numbers up into positive do this commandments, which were 248, and negative don't do this commandments, which were 365. So, 365 negative commandments could point to the days of the year. Does it matter? No, not really. 258 positive commandments. And again, you could write tradition out there or something. It's not really a big deal. So, was the law used for salvation before Jesus Christ? That's a question that gets asked all the time. Well, the Jews were saved by the, by the law and the Christians are saved by Jesus. Uh, well, that's not accurate. Um, there are, of course, we've talked about this before at Stuller Bible, but it's types of salvation. You have physical salvation when you're saved from a physical danger. Um, when I was carrying my son over the Chick-fil-A parking lot by his wrist, I was saving him from being ran over by the vehicles, and uh, that was a type of salvation. Um, uh, that would be physical. Spiritual salvation, of course, there's how many types? Anyone know? Three, thank you. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. So you were saved spiritually, you are being saved while in your walk, and you will eventually be saved physically when we're resurrected. So, <clears throat> so that's the three types of salvation. Four technically with physical. So how were pre-law people saved, or people before the law? Genesis 6, 9 says, these are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. So did Noah ever mess up? Then how is he righteous? He walked with God, right? Not, probably not physically, but um, he did his best, you could say. He, was a, he had his faith in God. He, he believed God's promises. And, uh, you know, I've always asked that question, you know, what does it mean to believe in God? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Do we have to believe he exists? Do we have to believe that he was a man? Do we, you know, and it really, when you go back and read these stories and you, and you look at it, they just trusted God. It's just a simple, I'm going to believe what God says. You know, there's not a specific way to believe. There's not a specific thing to believe, I guess you could say. I mean, we could argue this all night, I guess. But it seems as if you just got to trust God. Trust God, trust His Son, you know. Um, and of course, when you're trusting Him, you trust who He is. You believe, you know, you believe that He's Son of God, He's your Savior, whatever. Um, but it seems like a really difficult question for a lot of people. And I, I, that's come to my personal conclusion, is just trust the Lord, you know. And that's, that's your, 
That's what you do when you believe. So <clears throat> I'm not trying to add to it or anything, obviously. It's just it's just simple. So I think it's made more difficult sometimes. So <clears throat> so how were pre-law people saved? Genesis 6-9, they are saved by righteousness by faith. Uh, Genesis 15-6, this is of course the famous Abraham verse. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. I've had, oh, I've gotten in arguments with, not arguments, but I've, I've told people this verse, and they're like, well, does that mean, does that mean he gave him righteousness, or, you know, it's just like they've messed with the words so much, but it's pretty clear here that, and when you, re when you reference the Hebrews passage that's referencing this, it, uh, I think it's Hebrews, but yeah, um, yeah, I mean, he trusted the Lord, and, you know, he believed the Lord, and it, he gave him righteousness because of it. So, it, if you add to that or try to complicate it, you're just making it more difficult for yourself. And I don't know why Christians would want to complicate that, because you're just making things way more complicated for yourself and everyone around you. So, how were post-law people saved? These are people after the law. So, when the law is established, this is the verse that actually got Martin Luther really confused, because he, he was raised that works for salvation, but but how can you be righteous before God? And that's why he beat himself up, he froze himself out in the snow, you know. He he just tormented himself because he, how wretched this body is and stuff like that. Um, and then this, this uh, I don't know if he was a priest or what, came up to him and gave him Habakkuk 2.4. And it says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And that passage really inspired him to what led to the uh, Reformation. So, <clears throat> so that's how post-law, so, so people before the law were saved by faith. It's interesting that people after this law were given are also saved by faith, not by the law. So the law is impossible to keep, so it can't save you unless you keep it. But then again, you're also... Uh, and you also have inherited sin from Adam. So, so the law is impossible to keep. Romans three nineteen through twenty, and I'm going to go through this verse by verse because it's really a good, really good explanation of what the law is for. If someone ever said, "Well, if the law is not to save you, what's it for?" Then I would just take them here. It says, "Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law." That's a place to highlight right there so that every mouth may be closed. Which means, you know, I can't argue it. can't say, well, I did this, this good. can't boast, basically. And all the world may become accountable to God. Ooh. So, okay, so the law makes us accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Okay, so... By doing the works of the law, you can't be saved, can't be justified. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So there's the purpose of the law right there. So, um, because the law is to show that you are a sinner, to reveal sin. So, and you need something else, faith. I mean, it seems like you actually need less. You don't need all these works, you just need faith. So the purpose of the law is to reveal sin. All right. Any questions on the law? That was a very 10,000-foot overview of it. Uh, we didn't go, we, we'll go over all 613 verses, or, or commandments. We're about an hour. No, I'm kidding. 
Um, so we're going to talk about the tabernacle now, if no one has any questions or comments. Um, so if you want to go to figure 8-1, we've got a lot of these pictures back here. Of course, mine are in color, sorry. I didn't make these on the printer here. These are just pictures of the tabernacle, which of course was the fir first structure given to the Israelites while they were in the wilderness, given to Moses to give to build, so that they could carry this structure around, this portable tabernacle system, or tent structure, as a picture. Uh, and we could spend all night and all week on talking about just the very details of the tabernacle system and how it is basically the character of God in a physical structure. Um, but we'll just kind of cover the, the highlights. Um, there's the second picture, which I don't know how good it looks on your... Probably, okay, I can at least see details, not like a whole black image. But uh, that's the, the actual coverings, the tent, uh, the actual different animal skin layers. Um, and of course, if you go to 8.3, that's hair, or well, okay, that's Solomon's Temple. That's the one we're talking about now, which we'll talk about how much that thing costs to build in today's dollars. Uh, Herod's Temple is 8.4. Um, then, of course, you have the destruction of the temple later and so forth. So, all right, so the tabernacle. Outside of the court, or outside of the tent, or the, the well, there's the fence, you could say, around it, is desert. Okay, so you picture, picture this thing in the desert. You, it's dry, it's barren, it's dead, it's separated. It is characteristics of the world. Okay? So you picture this dry, dead world outside God's tabernacle, okay? Think of the tabernacle as God himself in a type sort of sense. The court fence, which is in, of course, there's your verses. If, if you go, where did you get this? That's where I got it. So uh, the court fence is in Exodus, all those passages. Um, it is white, which represents cleanliness clean, it's pure. So you see this dry, dead... Does anyone here like going to the desert? We go to Arizona like every year, and it's... Well, I love it. I can breathe better there. It's it's a dry heat. You know, that's the famous... You know, It's not like Oklahoma where you start suffocating as soon as you step off the plane. It's, it's hot, but it's not thick. It's dry. Yeah. So, anyway, I love the desert, but yeah, it's dead. I mean, there's just... There's plants, there's, it's pretty in places, but but if you're sitting out there in the middle of the desert and you see this white tent, you're like, ooh, that's that's welcoming. It's, it's a picture of welcoming purity. So there's your answer for that one. It's a, uh, it's, you see something clean and, and proper and white and pure and, well, just clean. Then you have the gate of the court. <clears throat> which the details are, of course, in Exodus 27 and 38, and some is in John. You have all these different colors of curtains. And I went over and studied all the all these colors in the Scripture. Just search blue. And, oh my goodness, you're going to have fun. Uh, blue, purple, scarlet, white. So you have blue represents the heavens. And if you're colorblind like me, it's blue or purple. Purple curtains represent royalty. 
a lot of this stuff is known by if you've studied any of the scripture you know that blue is heaven and purple is definitely royalty because purple is also always associated with kings and queens and just royal royalty scarlet represents blood just red <clears throat> And yes, if you're red-green colorblind, you can see red. You just can't see things with red in them that well. White represents purity. And these are the characteristics of God. And if you want to look up these colors, here's some references. Blue, Exodus 24.10. Purple. Ezekiel, or if you want to write easy. Shorthand, 27. Verse 7 and 16. If you want to look up scarlet, there's a lot of that. Leviticus 14, 6, 51, 52, Hebrews 9, 19. I'm making you write tonight, aren't I? Uh, if you want to study, of course, white. I just put a few of them, but there's a lot. Isaiah 1, 18. Mark 9, 3. And, of course... Revelation 19.14, my favorite, because all of us are wearing white on white horses. Just another reminder that you need to learn how to ride a horse. Oracle teaches. I don't know. Alright. Any questions on the tent? Or the, not the tent, the uh, fence. Okay. Inside the court, you have a bronze or a brazen altar. Making sure you have a good time. And that's in, of course, Exodus 27, 40, and 10, and 29. Um, it's also known as the Holocaust altar. Does anyone know what Holocaust means? Sacrifice. That's really all it means. So it's the sacrificial altar, or the Holocaust altar. It's made from acacia wood. A-C-A-C-I-A. It's overlaid with bronze. Each corner had a bronze horn. There are staves or poles of wood covered on bronze that were used to carry the altar. Covered with bronze, I should put it. So the bronze, bronze symbolizes judgment, or it withstands fire. So it, it withstands the judgment, basically. When you see bronze in the scripture, think of withstanding judgment. Or judgment in general. Fire represents judgment. And there's plenty of places you can look for uh, scripture on that. Isaiah 4.4, 4, Isaiah 66.16, I mean Daniel in the fiery furnace is one, Amos 7.4, Jeremiah 15.14, and if you want to just go back and watch the video or listen to the audio later for these verses, you can. Ezekiel 38, 30 verse 8. Hebrews 10, 27. There's a bunch. And this uh, altar is a picture of sacrifice. <clears throat> Are you heckling, Ryan? Oh, okay. Like 17 pages or whatever. All right, the bronze laver. Now, you'll hear JB say laver. I say laver, and that's okay. 
It's just pronunciation. Um, it's just a big wash bowl. Well, Solomon's was huge. It was like a swimming pool or like a hot tub. No, bigger than a hot tub. Anyway, it was a, it was much larger than the original plans for the, the wash bowl. So it was just to wash your hands and, you know. Solomon's like, hey, I'm making a swimming pool because we need to wash our whole bodies. So <clears throat> the bronze labor, and there's all your past your passages, Exodus 30, 40, Ephesians 5, Hebrews 10. It is filled with water. Have you guys been enjoying the questions on the quizzes online? Some of the answers. This this one's even better. I had fun with this one. Alright, so God said those would die who approached the altar without washing. So if you don't wash your hands in this thing, you're going to get sick. No, you're going to die. Serious stuff. Okay, That's in Exodus 30 verse 20. So, how is this a picture of Jesus, this labor? Well, John 7.38 says that all who enter the presence of God must be cleansed by living water. How is that uh, John 7.38. And there's a chance that I'm wrong because I got this done literally yesterday. So, but that, I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah, this was a lot of reading of the law in Leviticus and many many things so yeah uh, the tabernacle proper now this is the actual building we're getting to so we're inside the the, the temple grounds or the I say the temple the tabernacle grounds we're outside in the court but now we're going to talk about the actual building which is a very small structure and what's funny about that is Solomon's temple was the most expensive thing ever built and it's not any bigger than this building so well anyways we'll talk about that so coverings, and if you want to go to that's that figure eight two, Exodus twenty six, talks about this. They had fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and embroidered cherubim. Does anyone remember when a Hebrew word has bim on the end or m? What's that mean? Plural. Plural. Right. So multiple cherubs, little babies playing. No, um, very powerful angels. Well, they showed themselves periodically, and, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it was like, okay, make these cherubim, there's one, and they show up, and ah! <laughs> now draw that, or now carve that, you know. I'm sure God has a sense of humor, it wouldn't surprise me. But, um, goat hair, who wanted that job? Ram skins, dyed red. And this is where it gets interesting. I, I took a while searching, researching this. Hides of sea cows. That's, there's different translations. Porpoises, manatees, dugongs. Uh, some think it's goats. So, I mean, just whatever you... I don't know what your translations say. They probably say porpoises. But, uh, yeah, just have fun with that. I'm in the desert and i got to go find a manatee. I mean... <laughs> There's also, if you're in the King James, it also talks about unicorns. So, anyway. Um, not attractive, but beautiful within. So, this building, if you saw it from the outside with all these skins, and it's not the most prettiest thing in the world. 
At least not to me. If I saw this building, uh, okay. I mean, I wouldn't probably say that out loud, obviously. If I was around Moses and was like, oh, it's a beautiful tabernacle. It's being, it's being nice. But inside is where it's beautiful. And this is, of course, a an allusion to Jesus because he was prophesied as not being, you know, good on the eyes, basically. He wasn't, he was prophesied as being just a regular, regular guy, you know. So this is a picture of him, not attractive outside, but beautiful within. <clears throat> now we get past, we're actually going to go into the building now, the holy place. So we got, uh, of course we got the tent out here, entrance here, got the building here, the temple proper. This is the holy place. HP, um, that's where we are, the tabernacle proper, holy place, and that's in Exodus 26.33 and Hebrews 9.2.6, various other places. So there, inside there is a golden lampstand, which is right here, and of course it's got seven, it's a menorah, or menorah, you want to say it right. So there's one on the left. When you walk in, on your left, it's a menorah. It's an oil lamp. And then on the right is your table of showbread. Is that what's next? Oh, golden lampstand is in Exodus 25. I am the light of the world. That's John 8, 12, if you want to write that out there. So the menorah, or the lampstand, you'll see even in the New Testament, Jesus is at these feasts, and they see the lights, and he says, I'm the light of the world. <clears throat> Table of showbread is a uh, table on the right with 12 loaves of bread. I'm not going to draw a 12 loaves. There we go. Of course, there was a time when David went into the temple and ate the loaves of bread because he, you know, he didn't die. Why? That's grace. Um, and that's what Jesus argued when the Pharisees told him, you know, you can't, you can't heal on the Sabbath. Well, what did David do when he went into the temple, you know? Anyway, <clears throat> table of showbread. I am the bread of life. And that's John 6, 48. Again, it was 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay, the next one is the altar of incense. Oh, you're going to love the quiz questions. What's the altar of incense for? And there's multiple choice, so it's right there in the middle. Oh, and the uh, brazen altars out here. Well, that, okay. Back up. Be sure it's right here. And you got the <laughs> laver right there. And I'll put a little droplet of water right there. And then fire here. There we go. Okay. <clears throat> so, altar of incense. That's in Exodus 25, Hebrews 9 2. That is where intercession is made for us. It's the picture of prayers going up. <clears throat> and that's Hebrews 7.25. Jesus is our intercessor. Hebrews 7.25. Alright, and now we've got the most holy place, which is the little tiny room back here, which has the... What? Ark of the Covenant. 
my art. So, most holy place, or called the Holy of Holies. Or called the sanctuary. That's why we don't call our auditorium a sanctuary, because it's not that place. Okay, so, curtain, veil. We talked about that in detail last week. Pictures, it's an idea of separation of God from his people. Of course, that's in Exodus 26, 31 through 33. It tells you all the details of how intricate this veil was. They didn't, like I said, go to like Hobby Lobby and buy a sheet from the, or like a, they go to the fabric department and say, I want 35 yards of that. No, they made this thing very intricately, um, by hand, of course. <clears throat> and Exodus 34, 33, if you want to write that, that's, that's, a, that's Moses covering his face from God. And there's a lot of, if you want to search veil in the Old Testament, it's what you see is every curtain, every veil is an idea of separating yourself from God. People veiled their face when um, Rebecca saw Isaac coming, she <coughs> veiled herself, you know, and he's a picture of Jesus, of course. <clears throat> so, Ark of the Covenant, that's Exodus 26. We're going to go into that more detail here in a little bit after we talk about the temples. Ark of the Covenant. Man, it is hot in here. Is, that, is anyone else toasty? You mind, you mind turning it down a little bit? You don't want to? You don't want to get in trouble? All right, all right. Well, okay. I, I will not be upset if someone just gets up and, you know, changes that, but it's okay. No pressure. All right. Um, let's see. Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so inside the Ark of the Covenant, of course, we know it's a, the dimensions are there in Exodus. Hebrews talks about it in more detail, some detail. Um, inside the Ark, of course, if you watch Indiana Jones, it's just a bunch of sand. And then, of course, blah, yeah. don't look at it. No, anyway, um, I grew up on those movies, so. Uh, pretty sure it was just a theater to see one of them. Anyway, I was like five years old. Anyway, um, yeah, we watched it. Very bad stuff in the 80s. No, uh, bowl of manna or bread from heaven. So, Yeah, we survived. Yeah, we did fine. Um, so there is a bowl of the manna, which, who called it manna? Did God call it manna? No. No, the Israelites, which is a derogatory term. It's like, what is that? You know, in, in a much... I'm not going to say other words, but it's like, hey, what in the world is that, you know? And it's kind of offensive if you think about it, because it's, God called it bread from heaven. That's what he called it. He never called it manna. He called it bread from heaven. And it was what provided them food every day until they literally crossed the Jordan and then it stopped. When they entered the promised land, the manna stopped, or the bread from heaven stopped. Um... Oh, and then I'm going to go back just real quick. Well, we're, let's talk about this, and I'll mention that verse. Hebrews 9, the Hebrews 9, 3 through 4, which is already up there. I'll read that here in a second. So Aaron's rod, it had Aaron's rod in it that budded. You remember they all threw their... Aaron's rod, does anyone know what that rod did? It ate the other, ate the other snakes. It was the one that turned into the snake and then ate the other ones. Um, I, that's a rod to keep, right? That's a walking stick you want to keep with you. So... You're in the woods and you see a copperhead, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it had Aaron's rod. Of course, they eventually one of these one of the days they said, "Throw your rods up into the 
throw your rods down, and, and the next day, whoever's rod has budded is the priest. So, and of course, Ron's, or rod, Aaron's rod budded. So, <clears throat> had it actually had uh, almonds on it. Was it almonds? Yeah, almonds. Um, it also had the tablets of the Mosaic Law in it. And then the ark is a picture of the, what bears our sins, our sin bearer. And you can go to Hebrews 9.28 if you want to read about that. But Hebrews 9.3-4 says, Behind the second veil there was a tabernacle which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. It was in which was a golden jar holding the manna, bread of heaven, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. So that's how we know what was in there. The Old Testament doesn't tell you all those details. It's funny that Hebrews does. But there's some things that they just knew later on, like Satan arguing over the body of Moses. What's that about? We don't know, but they knew about it. That's in Jude, by the way. And then... Oh, by the way, this stuff was in the Ark, and it's actually, not all of these things are mentioned as being in the Ark in the Old Testament. So, the manna, specifically. I couldn't find any place in the Old Testament where it said there was a golden jar of manna in the Old Testament. It did say, um, Moses did say, take a jar of the manna and keep it with us, or something like that. And But, he never said, but they never said we put it in the Ark. So, it apparently was put in there later. So, the mercy seat. Now, that's the golden lid. We'll call it, but it goes over the box, which is the ark. The mercy seat is a separate golden seat. I mean, it's a chair, a throne, basically. Many people think it's going to be the throne that Jesus sits on in the, and we'll talk about that later, uh, when he comes back and rules in the millennium. <clears throat> so where is it? We'll talk about that. We don't know, but, well, someone knows, but anyways, we'll get into that later. So mercy seat is a picture of the propitiation for our sins, which is in Romans 3, 24-25, if you want to read that. The details for it are in Exodus 25, 17-22, Hebrews 9, 5. Um, king David desired, okay, so King David desires a temple for God. He basically is sitting there in his palace and he goes, okay, so the creator of the universe is in a tent. I'm in a palace. There's a problem with this. Um... That's 1 Chronicles 17.1, and it came about when David dwelt in his house. He's, David sent to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I'm dwelling in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant, which is where God dwells. Of course, God dwelt within between the cherubim, the two cherubim on top of the uh, mercy seat. <clears throat> but the Ark of the Covenant is the Lord is under curtains. 1 Chronicles 22.8 says, But the word of the Lord come to me, say, You have shed much blood and have waged great wars. You shall not build a house to my name, talking to David, because you have shed so much blood on the earth before me. So as a result, David provides the money and materials for the temple, but Solomon ends up, of course, building it. We've been talking about that on Sunday mornings. So Solomon builds the first temple. It was about 1000 B.C. He, added, he, he really improved this thing. He, like, upgraded it big time. Um, instead of having one menorah, or or lampstand, I think there were maybe 10? 10, yeah. 10 or 20, yeah, it was 10. Um, and he just went all out. 10 tables of showbread, you know. Um, he added storerooms for priestly personal items. And there's a whole lesson there. 
because some of the priests, the corrupt priests later, would put their idols in there, and it, it's just a picture of putting bad things in your mind. So <clears throat> he adds non-functional freestanding pillars and names them Yakin and Boaz. I don't want to hear anyone saying Jachin and Boaz or you know. No, it's Yakin and Boaz. And what do those names mean? Yakin means in his council. And Boaz means by his strength. These pillars didn't hold anything up. They were just there. They were just outside, not they were non-functioning. They just were there. Um, if you go to Isaiah 11, I'm going to write this down, it describes the attributes of the Messiah. And one thing that says is, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, or Yachin and Boaz, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So, there's an idea there of the Messiah. <clears throat> he added a porch, very expensive one. Okay, so here's the materials he used. And these, these prices I'm about to mention are from like two days ago. So I had to get, get out my calculator and find the price of gold and silver. So the materials are in 1 Chronicles 22.14. We've been talking about that on Sunday morning. We've already probably, probably remember how much it was. A talent is about 35 kilograms or 75 pounds approximately. So roughly 75 average. It's what I found. It's either under 75 or right over. First uh, Chronicles 22.14 says 100,000 talents of gold. So if you do the math, and that's 1 million talents of silver. Well, at least he had a, he had a lot of need for employees. Uh, quantities of bronze and iron that were too great to be weighted. So more than that probably, yeah. So, 1 Chronicles 22, or sorry, 29.3 says 3,000 talents of gold, 7,000 talents of silver from David's personal treasures. Chronicle, 1 Chronicles 29.7 says 5,000 and two and a half talents of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, 100,000 talents of iron from the leaders of Israel. And 1 Kings 5.10 says King Hiram of Tyre gave Solomon many cedar trees for the temple. You guys have enough gold and silver and bronze. Here's some trees. Here's some lumber. Alright, so do the math. 108,002 and a half talents of gold, which is about 8,100,000. Well, which is eight approximately, if you take 75 pounds as a talent, 8,100,108, and a half pounds of gold, which is, a gold is about, was $1,853 per ounce two days ago. So that would be $240 billion, sorry, $240,154,359,000 today, okay, for this little building. Um, and all the stuff inside of it. And then of course 1,017,000 talents of silver, which is about 76,275,000 pounds, which silver is $21.24 per ounce two days ago, which is about $25,921,296,000 uh, today. So, and there were 
quantities of bronze and iron too great to be weighted. So approximately 266 billion, 75 million, 655 thousand dollars, not including bronze, iron, wood, and 153,000 people uh, working on this thing. And of course the bronze and the iron were too great to be counted, so who knows how much that was worth. Possibly over half a trillion dollars in today's, for a relatively small building. So if you want to go and look at some of the prices it costs cost to build some of these really big structures today we have, it doesn't come close to this. So eventually all this, uh, this building, and this is where it gets just kind of upsetting, Solomon's Temple gets destroyed. So, I mean, you got that much gold in one little building, and silver, and gold, and gold, and more gold. Someone's going to want to take it all. So it was destroyed, and that was in 2 Kings 25. If you want to write that down. Nebuchadnezzar destroys the temple after several sieges of Jerusalem. This was the third siege in 587, some say 586. It's about, this, it's about that year. And, and the reason why it's that year is because there is documentation and archaeology confirms that it was about 587 B.C. <coughs> Eventually, the second temple is built, and it began around 537 B.C. And that construction ended about 516 B.C. So, do the math, you know, about that many years. <coughs> was that 21 years? <coughs> Hey, I did the math. Did I do the math right? Yeah, yeah I did. Wow. On the spot. Okay. Herod modifies the temple around 37 B.C. to basically gain favor with the Jews. So he makes it better. The Jews like him for it. Even though he's very corrupt. Eventually, that temple is destroyed. And, of course, this was what Jesus predicted in Luke 19. He rides over the hill on the donkey. He starts crying over Jerusalem and said, If you had recognized who I was... This wouldn't happen, but because you did not recognize me, you're now blinded. He pronounces ju judicial blindment, blindness, blindment, is that a word? blindness on Israel, which is still going on today. Not for every Jew, but for the nation as a whole, are blind to the Messiah. And he basically decrees that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. Details it big time in that Luke 19 passage, and it happens exactly like he said, of course, in AD 70, about 30 years, 40 years later. Just as Jesus predicted. So, there will be another temple. There's already plans for it. Third temple plans will be standing during the Great Tribulation. If you want to read Daniel 9.27, Matthew 24. If you want to go to the templeinstitute.org website, that's the group in Jerusalem that's actually built the implements for the temple. They built a replica of the ark recently. Um, it's not the original ark, but they built a replica. Um, they built all the silver trumpets, the uh, priestly garments, the uh, the menorah, the, the tables of table of showbread. They, they didn't do twenty or ten; they did one, and then um, they kind of held to the original design. But it's all there, ready to be put in the new temple when they're allowed to build it. So um, there will be a third temple. There's also a millennial temple, which is detailed in Ezekiel forty through forty-eight. If you want to read that. This is a temple that will be in the millennium. It's much different from the one in Jerusalem that's going to be in Jerusalem. And the ones that have been in Jerusalem. It's not even going to be in Jerusalem. Surprise, surprise. It'll be north of it. 
All nations will worship there or they won't receive rain. We talked about that a few weeks ago. And that's in Zechariah 14, 17, if you want to read that. That's a passage over the... the gives an interesting little uh, peek into the millennium time period. Um, all nations will be worshiping. And what, what feast are they going to be observing? Tabernacles. It's a seven-day camping trip. So, not bad. Um, but they won't receive rain. That's in Zechariah 14.7. If you don't go there, you won't receive rain. And I'm really feeling that right now because it is really hot here. Uh, offerings and sacrifices are resumed. So, we think we're done with the sacrificial system, but it gives us an idea that it's probably going to continue. But it's most likely going to be a memorial to those it sounds like it's going to be like a memorial for what Jesus did. He's going to be here, yet these sacrifices are not to remember like the Old Testament stuff that pointed to him, but he's going to be here and it's going to be like remember that it all points to him anyway. So, um, of the substitutionary death and so forth. And, and there's going to be new people born in the millennium, so these people are going to be raised up doing these things. And What's that? Uh, that's also in Zechariah it's in Ezekiel. Uh, just go to Ezekiel 40, 48, 40, chapter 40 through 48. There's, it's a lot in there. <clears throat> and Zechariah, if you want to read around Zechariah 14, it's in there too. The temple will only be open on new moons and Shabbat or the Sabbath. So, and interestingly enough, not on Sunday. Uh oh, it's going to upset a lot of church people. <coughs> That's in Ezekiel 46.1. Not that Sunday church worship's bad. It's just a tradition. That's what we just we just do that as a church. No big deal. Because Jesus rose on the first day of the week. But when does the first day of the week start on our calendar? <laughs> Saturday night, right? So who knows? It's not a big deal. Another, another discussion. We already had that discussion. All right, north of Jerusalem. It will occupy a holy district, 25,000 cubits long. That's about 25,000 of these. And 20,000 cubits broad. Sorry, 20,000 cubits broad. Okay, moving on to the Ark of the Covenant. Not the Noah one. Not the Noahic Ark. Alright, the construction of the Ark is in Exodus 25. I'm going to kind of speed it up here just because we've only got 30 minutes before I get yelled at. So Ezekiel, sorry, Exodus 25, 37, and Deuteronomy 10. I'm just kidding, I won't get yelled at much. Um, it was built by who? These three guys. Well, at least these three guys. Bezalel, that's a guy's name, by the way. Oaliab and Moses and others built the ark. And so that's Exodus 25, 37, and Deuteronomy 10. Moses will say, I built it. This guy will say he built it, and then they'll these Oh, a lion will say that Moses and Bezalel and him built it, and then others built. So a lot of people built this thing. The dimensions are two and a half cubits long. And again, you don't have to write all this down. Just, I'm just you can just listen, and then I'll just send this out. One and a half cubits wide and one and a half cubits high, according to Exodus 25:10. So God made Himself known between the two cherubim. You got the box. You've got the mercy seat with the two angels on top. Their wings are touching. Some believe that only one wing was touching and the other was down. We'll talk about that. Um, because there, if it's a seat for you to sit on and you've got these two, it's going to be kind of uncomfortable to sit on these golden angels, you know. So there's an idea that there was wings in the back touching, wings in the front down, and there's space to sit. So um, 
supposed eyewitness account. So anyway, we'll talk about that. Um, God made himself known between the two cherubim. It says in Exodus 25, 22, that there I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now when Moses went into the tent of meeting to speak with him, he heard the voice speaking to him from above the mercy seat that was on the ark of the testimony and between the two cherubim, so he spoke to him. So it's an idea of him sitting there in this ark, making himself known. And when they sprinkle the blood, they sprinkle it at the feet of the ark too. So it's an idea of like his, maybe his feet are there. So like a, like again, like it's a throne. So, so how is the ark like Jesus? Well, for there's six reasons I could find that made that seemed to make sense. The most important artifact to the Jewish people, which of course Jesus Jesus should be the most important person to the Jewish people and everybody with the church. It is made of imperfect wood and covered with perfect gold. So what's that make you think of? 100% man, 100% God. You've got, you've got wood in there, you've got gold in there, but it's one object. You've got you know, man and God. So the mercy seat is where sin is paid for. So on the, what's, what feast is sin paid for or covered in the Old Testament? I know it had several names. Yom Kippur, Feast of... <clears throat> Do what? No, I was just... It's Yom Kippur, I just went blank. What else is it called? Day of Atonement, thank you. I was like, not Feast of Atonement. Yeah, okay, all right, sorry. Yeah, Day of Atonement, Yom. Yom means day. Um, the Ark bears our sin. It carries within it, um, picture it as Jesus, it carries within it what he provides, the bread from heaven. It has his authority. Um, I mean, you don't touch this thing right, you're dead, basically. This box had the authority. But of course it was God that had the authority making himself known in this box. So it's not like Indiana Jones where the box was magical and you know the box was going to help Hitler rule the world. That's really not how it worked. Um, but it had power, but it was the power was from the God of Israel, of course. Um, the box contains the bread from heaven. The ark demonstrates divine authority. So those are six reasons. Most important artifact, made of imperfect wood, covered with gold. So it's man and God, or imperfection and perfection. Deity and man. The mercy seat is where sin is paid for. The ark bears our sin. And the ark contained the bread from heaven. And the art demonstrates divine authority. I said a lot of ands in there for all you English majors, I'm sorry. Um, so where is the art now? Well, that's, a, that's, that's where we're going to go over a lot of different hypotheses or conjectures. I wouldn't call them theories because we don't really know. But um, So one, was it destroyed? Of course, you don't have this, but it just says destroyed. So I'm going to talk about a few things, and then we'll, we'll go... Um, There's several theories or conjectures of where it is, and then we're done. So we have summary after this. All right, so was the ark destroyed? Okay, so the arch of Titus, does anyone know where that's at? Does anyone know what the arch of Titus is? Okay, good Google search when you, when you leave here, um, or when you get home or whatever. Arch of Titus, T-I-T-U-S. It's a big arch. I mean, like it sounds, not like McDonald's, but... Um, it's just like a big stone arch. 
you know, like you see in some of these ancient areas. And it's got this um, drawing on it, and it depicts the fall of Jerusalem in 8070. So it depicts Rome. It's in Rome, by the way. Um, it depicts Rome, Roman soldiers pillaging Jerusalem and carrying everything from the art or from the temple back to um, Rome. <clears throat> you see things in the picture like the menorah, you see trumpets, you don't see the ark though. So it's like, hmm, they're carrying like tables, showbread, the table of, you know, the different things, but you don't see the ark, which was the most important object. So, and it was known that the ark was not in the Herodian temple. The Herodian temple, of course, is the temple that was standing when Jesus was, was walking near. The ark wasn't there. But they did have procedures to how to atone for sin and all that without an ark. There's a little stone that came up in the middle of the floor that they would actually use as their, what they sprinkled the blood on and so forth. They didn't have an ark, so they just did it there. <clears throat> so they basically kind of memorialized it as, well, we don't have the ark, and there's ideas of where it is, but... Um, they do have procedures to deal with an absent ark. Um, there is a verse in Jeremiah 3.16, <clears throat> which a lot of people go to and quote to say that the ark's gone, it's destroyed. And it might be. I'll just read it and then we'll go on. Uh, it will be in those days when you have multiplied and increased in the land, declares the Lord. There will be, they will no longer say the ark of the covenant of the Lord, and it will not come to mind nor will they remember it, nor will they miss it, nor will it be made again. So there's people will say, well, that means it was destroyed because it couldn't be made again, or it's just gone, you know, it's forever. But then if you read the next verse, you know, we've been talking about the mercy seat and the ark, and of course in Scripture the ark is always talked separately from the, when you talk about the ark, it's talking about the box. When you talk about the mercy seat, it's the throne or lid on top. At that time, this is the next verse, Jeremiah 3.17, it says, They will call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord, and all the nations will be gathered to it, to Jerusalem for the name of the Lord, nor will they walk anymore after the stubbornness of their evil heart. So then there's a, that's, that kind of leads to, well, maybe the ark will be gone and won't be spoken of. It's a wooden box. There's actually people that say that, that claim they have the ark today, that the box is rotting. But the mercy seat is fine, and, and we'll talk about that too. But um, there's several places that people think it is. Um, but like I said, we'll get into that in a second. But then what's funny is, I say what's funny, what's interesting is that in Revelation 8, or 11, 11, 19, it says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened, and the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So... It seems to indicate that the ark still exists and will be in heaven. So I'll just leave that for you to study. Now here's another, that was, was it destroyed? Now here's another theory or hypothesis is that it's in Ethiopia. How many have heard this? Okay, so I got this article from khouse.org. Um, it said, I'll just read it. Many of us have heard the belief that the ark was taken to Ethiopia by Menelik I, the offspring of Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, who raised... Haven't you heard the story of Queen of Sheba and Solomon having a baby? Okay. And that's where the Jews of Ethiopia came from. So, that's the story. Raised by priests until he was of age, and then leaving behind a replica, removed the ark to separate it from Solomon's apostasy. These ideas were developed by Graham Hancock in his book, The Sign and the Seal... 
1996 and is also popularized by Grant Jeffrey and some of the publications. Emperor Haile Selassie has been regarded in the 225th descendant of Menelik and these traditions continue to be embraced by the current leadership of the government of Ethiopia. The idea that the Ark is presently ensconced in Ethiopia is a well-documented tradition dating from at least 642 BC when it ostensibly was at Elephantine Island in Egypt, which is a big, or a little island in a huge lake, <clears throat> and then moved to Tanakirkos Island, oh sorry, Lake Tana, that's the big lake I'm talking about, Ethiopia, and finally to its present site. So at this big lake, there's a little island, and there's evidence that there was an ark there. They've got like a little kind of mock-up of a temple that's ancient, and they've got little holes in the concrete, which seemed to indicate that this might have been where an ark sat. Um, and some of these priests that have been living on this island for thousands of years still have claim to have some of the original temple implements, like um, some of the original um, bronze furniture and stuff like that. And they'll show you, there's pictures of it, and it's just like really old looking, so who knows, it could be the originals. Um, it's an interesting story. Um, it says, uh, oh, wait, okay, um, and finally brought to its present site, it was taken away from there, into a well-protected bunker at St. Mary's of Zion Church at Axum. You can look up pictures of it, it's well-protected. Ethiopia, the Ethiopians believe it was destined to be delivered to the Messiah when he reigns at Mount Zion. If you go to any Ethiopian in that area and say, where's the ark? They'll say, what's oh, here? And I'll say the original. You say the original? Yeah, it's here. And they have this ceremony. I think it's every week. They all come out and they have a parade. It's every week or every month. It might be every day. I don't know. It's it's very often. But they go out and they're Christian Jews and they literally worship Jesus. They they believe that their destiny is to bring him the ark when he comes back. And they they again they worship Jesus. Um, and they claim that they march around with a replica of the ark. They don't actually take the actual ark out. They have one guy that spends his whole life protecting the ark, and he trains a um, replacement for him as a child. They raise him up, and he becomes this. When this man dies, this young child takes over to protect the ark, and the cycle continues. It's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. So, do they have it? I don't know. It's an interesting story. There's rumors that Benjamin Netanyahu have made secret trips to Ethiopia. Um, do they have it? Then you can take the story of the Ethiopian eunuch meeting with Philip. He's coming up to give gifts to the Messiah who's been crucified and didn't understand that. Then he goes back to Ethiopia with all his gifts. Who knows? Was the ark in there? I don't know. So there, that's just one of the that's one of the uh, stories. Um, there's an idea that it's on the Temple Mount. And I actually got this from the TempleInstitute.org. This is interesting because they claim they have the ark, so or they know where it is. Tradition records records. Oh, is it really fifteen till? Okay, I need to hurry. Tradition records that even King Solomon built the first temple. He already knew, though, divine inspiration through divine inspiration, and that eventually it would be destroyed. Thus, Solomon, the wisest of men, oversaw the construction of a vast system of labyrinths, mazes, chambers, and corridors underneath the Temple Mount complex. He commanded that a special place be built in the bowels of the earth. Going on, going on. That the king of Judah, about forty years of the description of the first temple. Okay, I don't, you don't need to know all that secret place which Solomon had prepared. 
This is from their website. The location is recorded in our sources, and today there are those who know exactly where this chamber is. And we know that the ark is still there, undisturbed, and waiting for the day it will be revealed. An attempt was made a few years ago to excavate toward the direction of this chamber. This resulted in widespread Muslim unrest and rioting. They stand a or they stand a great deal to lose if the ark is revealed, for it will prove to the whole world that there really was a holy temple, and thus that the Jews really do have a claim to the Temple Mount. The official position of the Islamic Waqf, the body that governs over the Temple Mount, is that there never was a holy temple and that the Jews have no rights whatsoever to this place. Okay, that's another theory. Mount Nebo. The theory that Jeremiah hid it in Mount Nebo, which is the mountain that Mount Moses stood on when he when God showed him the promised land and then died. Moses died, and then God buried him. <clears throat> that's in uh there's a there's a text, of course it's not scripture, it's in Maccabees. It's one of the books that was written between the Old and New Testament. Um, which details Hanukkah and its origins and so forth. But it also says, and I won't read the whole passage, but it basically talks about how Jeremiah, having received an oracle, uh, uh, ordered that the tent and the ark should follow him, and that they go to the mountain where Moses had gone up, and the inheritance of, uh, seen the inheritance of God, Jeremiah came and found a cave dwelling, brought the tent and the ark there, then he sealed up the entrance. Some of those who followed came up in a, intending to mark the way, but could not find it. When Jeremiah, or, or who followed him, they were intending to mark the place where they hid it so they could find it. And Jeremiah learned, he got upset, rebuked them, and declared, This place shall remain unknown until God gathers to his people together again and shows mercy. Then the Lord will disclose these things, and the glory of the Lord will cloud, and the cloud will appear, and they were shown, um, as they were shown in the case of Moses, and Solomon asked the place should be especially consecrated. So, another hypothesis that it's there. Um, there's another hypothesis that it was discovered by Ron Wyatt, an archaeologist, who gets a lot of negative press. How many have heard of him? Have you? What do you think? It's it's interesting. I mean, I'm not saying to leave this guy, but he seems he seems very genuine and like he's not wanting press, fame. You know, he doesn't. He, he, he died, but he at the time he found it in 1982. He said he supposedly, see he didn't actually. He saw it through the rocks that he couldn't get. No, he got in there. I won't go into the details. But now, no, go to his website sometime, uh, his YouTube site. No, uh, that's, it's an interesting story because of how it's, it's, it's underneath Golgotha where the cross stood. And that basically the blood of Jesus came down when the, when the rocks split, when he died, and that the blood came down through the rocks and actually landed on the lid of the ark being the final sacrifice and that he actually, he says that he found, that took the blood, and he was instructed by angels. It's a very interesting story. You can read it if you, watch it if you want. He took the blood, he took it to a lab in Jerusalem. They checked it. It only had 23 chromosomes because without having a human father, you can't have, what is it, 46? I can't do the math in my head. Uh, anyways, you can't have, so he didn't have the male chromosomes. And they were able to revive the blood, and they said, wow, this blood's alive, and then it was covered up, and no one talks about it anymore. So it's a real interesting story. He was in tears when he was talking about it, and he seemed very genuine. I don't know if it's true. I just throw it out there because it's an interesting story. Will the ark be something involved maybe in the tribulation period? Possibly, because they're going to have a temple, and to have a temple, you don't have to have an ark, but if you have one, might as well be in the temple. So... Um, it's a it's a Jewish artifact. Um, and we know that the seventh year tribulation is about the Jews, 
So will there be an ark in, in the tribulation? Who knows? Do we know where it is? I don't know. Um, is it a big deal? No. But um, it's just interesting to talk about. So summary. And again, I'll send you all this since you don't have it. The law is the standard of perfection and reveals sin so that people will have faith in their Messiah. Put them with faith in the Messiah. The tabernacle is a picture of bringing God to man through Christ. The Ark of the Covenant is a picture of Jesus' authority, deity, humanity, and bearing of sin. Oh, do you guys have this page? Oh, you do have this page. Okay, so I'm going really fast. I'm sorry. Did anyone miss those? Second one. The tabernacle is a picture of bringing God to man through Christ. Okay, so the first one was the law is the standard of perfection and reveals sin so that people will put their faith in the Son. The Ark of the Covenant, and I gave you a really big blank for that, sorry, is a picture of, you could just say the Ark, is a picture of Jesus' authority, deity, humanity, and bearing of our sin. Bearing our sin. Eternal life salvation is always obtained as a gift by faith in the Messiah. Just trusting God. I mean, that's really all it is throughout Scripture. It's the only way to be saved. And, of course, we've corrupted that message over centuries. Memory verse is 1 Corinthians 6.19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, or that, and that you are not your own?